the damage I did was mainly to my kids and to my family, my husband. It fueled my denial because I didn't suffer any of the typical consequences alcoholics or addicts have. But I became an emotional, my bottom was an emotional and spiritual bottom because I carried such guilt and shame about becoming the one thing that I didn't want to be. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life explores the stories of real people who've navigated their way out of life's toughest situations, emerging with greater strength and resilience. If these stories remind you of your own journey and you or someone you know need help, our collective journey is here for you. Whenever you're ready to take that next step, reach out to us at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Welcome back to season four of From Darkness to Life podcast. Ryan here in the studio. And uh, I just want to remind all the listeners that we do have uh, a From Darkness to Life Instagram page now. So anybody who's been looking for us, you know, it's been kind of meshed into our Collective Journeys Instagram page. So we've broken that out. And starting now in season four, we're going to have our own page. The address is at FDTL podcast. So please check that out. Give it a follow, maybe some shares. Uh, you just never know who's going to need to hear these messages or um, yeah, messages of hope, right? We're, we're Sometimes we're never meant to know who needs to hear them. They just need to hear them and they seem to cross people's paths at the right time. So keep sharing them and uh, we can't express our gratitude enough for all the feedback and all the listeners that are taking, taking part in uh from darkness to life it's it's really starting to take off so thank you once again um yeah like i said season four is rolling and we have a guest today from southern alabama a texan at heart i was told earlier which i've holidayed in texas now over the last few years and spent a christmas there and i don't blame you i i find it a amazing state and the city of dallas i'm not sure where you're from in texas originally but the city of dallas janice i fell in love with it and i could definitely see myself ending up there someday so. That's true. Well, and, and I will uh, mirror that point. I grew up outside of Houston mm. in a little, really a little suburb of Houston, but my middle son now lives in Dallas. Oh, nice. And for a few years, my youngest child is still in college, and I'm trying to encourage him to move to Texas, too, because I figure if I get to there, then I could retire ah, in Texas there you go. or have a little retirement home there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, yeah, beautiful state, um, beautiful city. And I, like I had told you before we got on air, I played a little hockey. So I got, you know, very in depth and, and, uh, in the hockey mix here, like most Canadians and, uh, follow the Calgary flames quite thoroughly and, and ended up going down to Dallas last year to watch when they, just by chance, my father-in-law was still living in Dallas and, uh, the Calgary flames were playing the Dallas stars in the first round of the playoffs. So it was cheaper for me to fly down there get tickets to two games than it was to pay for tickets here. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. That, but I guess they're really trying to entice people for to sure. hockey games. For sure. And it was, it was an so. amazing atmosphere and yeah, just a beautiful city. But anyway, that we can uh, go down the Dallas path on a different podcast. Cause I think today we got some okay. really cool stuff to talk about. And so yeah, just a kind of quick introduction to Janice and then you can fill the gaps in. Cause I know very little and mm -hmm. that's what makes these podcasts so amazing is that, you know, we're introducing you and, and some of your experience and some of your professional experience to our listeners, but you're just crossing paths with individuals that uh, otherwise, you know, 
other than this podcast, I likely wouldn't get to meet them. So I'm super excited to have you on today, Janice. You are a licensed master social worker, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct. Awesome. And I primarily worked in addictions or with families in crisis, Nice. but done a number of different things. And uh, from my own experience and from my education and background, and those two things go hand in hand most of the time, right? Yeah. Addiction and family crisis. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, uh, to, well, and we'll get into this as we go. Right. But it's, I see so many times where the individual goes away to treatment or goes away to work on themselves to better their quality of life. And the family stays doing the same dance. And then the individual comes back from treatment and one's doing the tango and one's doing the polka. And it just doesn't work very well for very long. That's right. And that's, that's exactly, you took the words out of my mouth. Nice. You do the tango and the polka. That's exactly my mission. And because I feel like in treatment settings, Mm -hmm. mistreatment settings, they recognize that family support is important, but I don't think they give enough information to the addict or alcoholic about how to reintegrate back into your family things to do. And so, um, and I personally experienced that with my own recovery and uh, it took me a long time. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of asking questions, getting help from my peers. And um, I've written a book about it, which hopefully will be published soon. But really my passion is helping with families. So oh, and that's, that's fascinating. And it's so important, I think for the success of, you know, and when I say success, it's a very loose term, but for the, for somebody to benefit their quality of life and somebody to move forward in their recovery, I think you have to incorporate the entire family. You know, they talk about addiction being a family disease. It's not just impacting the one individual. And I learned that, you know, once I got into recovery through my active addiction, I thought I was only hurting myself and once I got into recovery and I saw the the ripple effect of my behavior and my my addiction impacted, oh my gosh, the the circle was huge. It's true. Yeah. It's true. All right. So may I start with sharing a little of my story? Please, please do. Is that a good place? Absolutely. Well, um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Mm-hmm. I was the youngest of three kids and the only girl. So I, from the get-go, was the mascot, the baby the distractor from the family dysfunction. I um, emerged from that very much a people pleaser, very little (laughs) self-esteem because it was based on what other, what I accomplished or what other people told me I should be proud of. Mm. I, um, we moved around a lot as a kid. So I learned one, how to read people, how to judge people and how to become what they wanted me to be so they'd like me. I learned how to make friends real easy. Um, We lived pretty far from my parents' extended families. And on one hand, that might be good, but I really liked their extended families, but they would come and go. So in my youth, I experienced a lot of change, a lot of moving, and I developed a very superficial personality. I mean, that. I would mold myself to what other people wanted me to be. And I built up a wall, not trusting of others, never let people get too close to me because one of two things was going to happen. I was going to leave you or you were going to leave me. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I still struggle with that a little bit today um, and keeping people at a distance until I feel 
like there's an equal investment in the relationship. Right. So, uh, one of the good things my parents did, though, I mean, there are good experiences in growing up my family. My family was very loyal. And uh, that was a good trait. And I think I passed that on to my kids. And um, very cool. Despite my alcoholism, right. we've gotten to a point where we're all back together. Oh, that's fantastic. So anyhow, so I grew up as a, a, a an, an adult child of an alcoholic, a codependent. And as a little kid, I really early on, I decided I would never be an alcoholic and I would never put my kids through what I went through. Um, I experimented with alcohol and drugs as a teenager and I honestly did not like the effects they had on me. Alcohol made me feel out of control right. and coming from an inconsistent living environment. I wanted control. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of us ACAs are very controlling. For I sure. take a sip. Yeah, for sure. Um, and pot just made me nervous, anxious, paranoid. Mm -hmm. So I was the kid that I did drink some and smoke a little pot with my friends really out of peer pressure. Yeah. Out of um, wanting to fit in. My saving grace was that I was an athlete. I was a swimmer. And when I look back at that, I would say my passion for swimming was really part of my addiction. Okay. Um, I approached swimming like an addict does, like, got to get to the pool. That's how you deal with your anger. That's how you cope with frustrations. That's how you escape. Yeah, makes sense. But yeah, so that was, and, and thankfully enough, I was good enough that I got a college scholarship and got to move away from home. And um, there I, of course, was drawn to psychology and social work. I mean, just makes sense. Yeah. Like they say, you grow up in an alcoholic family, you either become one, you marry one, or you be working the, you know, the helping field. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. So I, um, and I did, I, I got, had some great experiences, internships early on in both undergraduate and graduate school. So I walked right into a career in addictions, working primarily from the family side, because that's how I presented myself. I am an adult child of an alcoholic. You know, I mm -hmm. can relate to the parents, relate to the, uh, on the family side, I was the advocate for the family. And, um, and during that time, the nice thing is, too, is that I participated in my own therapy and Al-Anon ACA, and I felt like I had a pretty good introductory recovery program. So, I um, was on my way in my 20s. Yeah. Then I met and married my husband, who's now my ex-husband, and um, alcohol was not a big part of our lives socially. We pretty quickly had four children and so my i went from very committed to my career to very committed to my family and um during that time period for my most of my 30s i was either pregnant or breastfeeding yeah. and i was very fitness minded and so i didn't drink much okay. and um and again alcohol was not a big part of our lives then I hit my 40s yeah. and started drinking, and um, I was in denial because for 20 years I had drank socially, mm -hmm. you know, in between pregnancies and children and at social functions, 
And it, as my daughter said, it's a slippery slope. I um, gradually drank more and more. I mean, kind of started with the mommy wine culture, which is getting some, um, a lot of discussion lately. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. So it's, it's crazy, but I became a full blown alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I mean, classic. I denied it for the last couple of years because I didn't have any DUIs. I did most of my drinking at home. So, my victims, the damage I did was mainly to my kids and to my family, my husband, Mm ex-husband. And um, it fueled my denial because I didn't suffer any of the typical consequences alcoholics or addicts have. Yeah. But I became an emotional, my bottom was an emotional and spiritual bottom because I carried such guilt and shame about becoming the one thing that I didn't want to be and and hurting my kids and hurting my marriage. So, but of course, that didn't immediately make me stop drinking. The last couple of years, I put on my social work you know, therapy hat and was like, okay, I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to try and get my life straight through therapy, Okay, antidepressants. I mean, just the whole story of For trying sure. everything else <laughs> yeah. before you decide to give up alcohol. Um, But I finally did. My therapist was like, maybe you could benefit from the uh, 12-step program. And I knew what it was all about. It hadn't worked specifically in addictions until... For the, like the last 10 years, but I knew what it was like. So I went to an open meeting and loved it. Nice. <clears throat> and I tried for like the next three months to get sober, but I was not successful. So I ended up in treatment. Mm-hmm. I had my, my best friend and some family staged a little mini intervention on me and I went to treatment and um, I went in with very naive ideals and um of course the guilt and shame but also crazy enough a little bit of arrogant like oh i know what i'm in for oh yeah totally i get that here for four weeks (laughs) my kids are going to participate in family program we're going to have aftercare program and we're all going to live happily ever after the end which which (laughs) is and i was explaining this to my daughter recently i mean that was like the mo of the family i grew up in we denied how bad problems were. Yeah. We swept things under the rug. And Miss Little Superficial Sweet Janice would try to cheerfully distract from the real problem. Yeah. So anyhow. Well, I think I that goes treatment. with I think that goes with earlier on you mentioning, you know, that role in the family you played, the mascot role, right? That's kind of goes hand in hand with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've had years of practice with it. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And and still in years of being kind of superficial mm-hmm. and being very compliant as a people pleaser. I was a great athlete because I listened to my coaches. I was a good patient in inpatient treatment because I did what you told me to do. <laughs> yeah. Um so the problem was that I embraced treatment so much. And being a good, compliant patient, 
it's hard to explain, but I kind of use the system against my family. Okay. Like you hear, you know, you've got to get sober first. You've got to put your oxygen mask on before you put it on your kids. Mm-hmm. So on the occasions where I would say like, oh, I'm worried about my family or um, my kids won't talk to me. The first feedback I would get would be like, you got to stay sober. Your kids are not going to talk to you or they're not going to want to have a relationship with you unless you're sober. Right. So that fueled my fear of rejection, I mean, and denial about, one, how much damage I had done, and two, how much they knew about it. Wow. You know? Absolutely. My kids were 13, 15, I think 20 and 21 when I went to treatment. And just as a side note, I like to say, I mean, parenting was my identity. It was what I felt like I was made for. Parenting and coaching and teaching, that that is my identity. And I think I did a pretty good job all those years that I was pregnant and breastfeeding. (laughs) Like, my two older kids would probably say, yeah, we liked you when (laughs) the younger boys were young. But we didn't understand what happened to you, how you seemed to put alcohol before us Mm. towards the end. And my younger kids experienced that much worse. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, I started drinking when they were like three, five, three and five years old, probably. That's when we started. It's a long story, but started socializing. So anyhow, I went to treatment. I had all kinds of uh, unrealistic expectations. When I went into treatment, there was definitely a divide. I mean, like you said earlier, in active addiction, we do all kinds of damage to mm-hmm. our family members. For sure. Um, I don't need to go into those. So there was a divide. And while I was in treatment, that I let that divide widen mainly out of my fears, yeah. but also, and I think this is an obvious factor, you know, when you take away alcohol and drugs from the addict, you don't have a coping mechanism to deal with all the feelings that come gushing forth. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, and it's just hard. And my theory is, you know, you regress back to what worked as a child. Mm-hmm. For sure. Again. Fear of rejection, being superficial, being really hard on myself, but searching for meaning for people who I did value, which became my recovery community. So, I did really embrace recovery, and I opened up and started to really dig deep. Part of my story is that I um, am a sexual sexual assault survivor. Okay. And I have child molestation issues in my background. And um, once I got to treatment and took away the coping mechanism, all this stuff started gushing out. And I went from four weeks of treatment to 12 weeks of treatment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, because they're like you got some problems, Mm -hmm. we're going to keep you. You know, all those years as a social worker, as a mom, you would look at me and go, yeah, she's she's on the right path. But I had not dealt with those core 
issues. And that's, I think, I also do a workshop on, on relapse prevention. And I think that, uh, once you develop sobriety skills, the next thing to, you got to do is to heal up those old wounds. Absolutely. And I just was working with an individual yesterday and that's the conversation we were sharing was, you know, work on your recovery tools, work on your stability in early recovery. And then my suggestion was just like you had said, right, is then we'll get you connected to the right trauma therapist and we'll start looking at those pieces. It's so hard to do in those first few weeks. It's setting yourself up for a disaster usually. Yeah. And I agree. I, one of the things I talk about in the book and with my sponsees, because I'm no longer in private practice. Okay. Um, I'm focusing on conferences, workshops in the book. And um, is that you have to build that solid foundation of recovery mm-hmm. first. Because those issues that I've seen happen amongst my peers, those issues can send you down, you know, yeah. very depressed, a very dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. For but sure. anyhow, let's go back to, I. so I, I ended up being 12 weeks in treatment. Yeah. I was very superficial towards my family when they came to visit, which didn't happen very often because my treatment facility was 200 miles away from where my kids were. Okay. And my kids are all involved in sports. Yeah. Like their parents. And um, so there weren't very many visits. And uh, there wasn't very much family therapy. They did not really include the younger children in the family week, but my kids participated in a couple of days of it. So they did not get the same kind of level of intense help that I was. Right. That makes the divide. I think that's a really common problem. And that's something I talk about here too, in the book too, is that you have to recognize that you're growing and changing, whether it's 90 meetings in 90 days or just working a really good 12-step program or some type of outpatient program, you are growing and changing at a rate much faster than your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. And your behaviors, and this is what I experienced as a family therapist in my 20s or in, in my early 30s, too, that um, family members would often say to me, you know, their behavior is just as crazy now as it was when they were drinking or using. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just is unpredictable. And, and I can see why some people look at 12-step programs and go, it's kind of cultish. <laughs> Isn't if that you, the truth? Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I've heard that feedback myself. Yeah. I mean, it's because we speak a little bit different language. Mm-hmm. We feel really safe with those people. <clears throat> and um, they become our safer family, which yeah. I'm all about. Yeah. But you got to include your family in that and in whatever way you can. Have them at least offer them the opportunity to come to open meetings. Yeah, for sure. Teach them the language. Um, Explain to them why going to a meeting might be more important than going to the piano recital on a certain day. And that was one of the things when I first went to treatment and they they told me things like that. No, that your sobriety comes first. 
and you're going to have to prioritize this over sporting events, piano recitals, any of the activities. I pushed back a little bit from that. But at the same time, I was also going, I don't understand. I don't understand why they're not getting this. I don't understand why they're not proud of my 30-day chip. Yeah. And it's because of that divide, yeah. because of we're living two different worlds. So, so now I have the experience on the alcoholic addict side of what it's like being confused as to why our family members don't get us. Yeah. You know? That's really cool. So you have two different perspectives on it, right? Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, Fascinating. like that's why I got into this. And then of course I have the family therapy um aspect of it, the training. And um and I think family therapist working okay, I'm just gonna back up for one second mm-hmm. and say I think one thing that would have helped my family a whole lot more, and I'm still assuming full responsibility for that divide between us, but would have been more helpful was for them to see a therapist with experience with addictions. Mm, Yes. Because there's a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, the therapist for the family, for my kids, was their advocate. But without them having, an ex- and it don't necessarily have to have the personal experience of being an addict or alcoholic, but have a good understanding yeah. of the physical aspects of addiction mm-hmm. um, to help advocate to the family on behalf of the addict or alcoholic. I don't know how I got on that tangent, but that was one of the mistakes I think that happened with our family. And I think that's one of the things that treatment centers could do better is in making those referrals, which it sounds like I, you spoke earlier about having someone that you were going to refer to a trauma therapist. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that we really found um, that we needed to focus on early on. And this is just a brief interlude in your story, but you know, the, mm-hmm. as recovery coaches, right. It's building connections with the existing uh, resources in the community and actually knowing what their mandates are knowing what they're special at, what they specialize in. So that when somebody gets to that point in their journey, that they're ready to, you know, start looking backwards at those pieces. Now we have a selection of the appropriate resources to refer them to. So it kind of helps eliminate that barrier for them. Right. And right. it's, they're all so valuable at certain, for sure, at that, certain specific points in someone's journey, um, they're, they have their value. Maybe they're not at the start, or but we try to help them focus on what's important, what's the next right step, and then, you know, we're going to help you get connected to them. Yeah, I love that term, the next right step. That was something I fell back on a lot in early recovery, or I sell to my sponsees is like, the next, the next right step, mm-hmm. the next thing that's going to be good for your recovery. Okay. Yeah. And as opposed to the quick, like, uh, you know, I for want sure. this ice cream. And it's so. usually the, the one that seems more uncomfortable. That's usually the next right step. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Walking through the pain. Oh my goodness. One of my other mantras that I always preach about is, um, because I struggle with fear, mm-hmm. obviously. So did I. And, um, So my, oh my gosh, I might blank on this, but um, my mantra for fear is like, pause, breathe, walk through the fear and trust God. Oh my gosh. 
So, yeah, because you just got to go for it. Mm -hmm. And what happens with it is in God's hands, not mine. Yeah. Yeah. Surrender control and just push through it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, that's powerful because that's, and for me, in my experience, Genesis, once I started to take those steps, like you just said, pause, breathe, push through it and trust God. A lot of times it wasn't as bad as I made it out to be. The fear had built it into this massive event and I'm like, oh, that wasn't so bad, actually. Let's try the next one. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah that's sure. so true. So, um, and that's what I had to begin to do. So, okay. Did 12 weeks of treatment. The gap expanded mm-hmm. between myself and my family. I'm still taking responsibility, but it was clearly evident that there was a couple of members of my nuclear family who did not want me to return home Wow, that were, and I had set myself up for that. Mm -hmm. So I went to a halfway house, (laughs) which on one hand, you know, you go to 12 weeks of treatment, it becomes a really safe place. Yeah. If you've committed to doing the work. So going to a halfway house seemed like, and then I also meant doing like four, six more weeks of, intensive outpatient therapy, which was great. You know, and I, once I surrendered to that, I I still love therapy. I still love self-help. I still participate in a twice a month woman's therapy group that addresses mostly our adult child of alcoholic issues, but I still love that. Amazing. So I did that. I didn't do much to work on my family. And then when I was about six months sober, didn't know if I would share this. I got kicked out of my halfway house for something I didn't do, mm-hmm. but I got kicked out. I probably, I, I, I look back at it now. And when I talk about it, I'm like, well, I got kicked out for something I didn't do, but I was breaking other rules. So I deserved to get kicked out. Yeah, But that was a huge shock to me. Because, you know, at most, at the halfway house I was at, probably 70% of the women there were 30 years or younger. Okay. And here I was in my 50s, and I became kind of a surrogate mom to some of them. Yeah. And that fulfilled my need to parent, Mm -hmm. since I wasn't doing it with my own kids. And um, so when I now I was working a really good 12 step program. I was doing my therapy, all of that. I had finished my, I'm pretty sure I'd finished my fourth and fifth step by then. So when I got kicked out and it happened like snap, um, it was a, a real shocker. Um, I knew I couldn't go home because literally a few days before it'd been like, see you bye. Yeah. Um, and I slipped into a deep, dark depression. I, my sponsor at the time said, you can come live with me for seven days while you figure it out. So I um, interviewed at several other halfway houses and sober living houses. And the first one rejected me. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And the girls at the halfway house that I was at who had become part of my family were not allowed to contact me or mm. talk to me wow. or be risk being kicked out too. So I lost my family. Yeah. I lost my 
family, my kids, and I lost my recovery family except yeah. for my sponsors. And those people at meetings who I had kept at an arm's length, it was an incredibly humbling experience. It was the best thing that happened to me, though, because it forced me to take down those walls, to reach out to people to help me get into a halfway house, since the first one rejected me. Right. Um, but I have to say, it took me a couple months of sitting in self-pity and um, depression before I got out of it. Thankfully, I have a really mean sponsor <laughs> and a really direct therapist. And, you know, they pushed me into doing the steps to work it out. Right. I finally realized that my heart belonged at my home with mm -hmm. my kids, that I had been avoiding dealing with certain issues, but I started to do the work. And part of doing the work was doing the adult child of alcoholic work, mm -hmm. doing finishing up what I'd started in treatment, because you can only do so much in a treatment center sure. when your brain is still clearing. And to get to the knowledge that I, to get to where I am now, started with asking for help. Talking to the old timers, yeah. reviewing the literature. I've always loved reading and writing. I was big into research in undergrad and grad school. And talking to, my favorite part of this is that, talking to the children of my peers Interesting. and asking them, and this is from a personal point of view, not so much as a therapist point of view. Mm -hmm. What is your mom doing right? What did she do wrong? What do you want? What did you need? Yeah. And um, gradually started applying those informations. Now, a big part of what I want to put forth in this podcast is that this is really hard work, but I want you to have hope. Yeah. Because it can be done. No matter how bad you've screwed up your relationships, it can be done. It took me, so I was like six months sober when I really started actively working on building relationships with them. took me a good year of uh, work before I saw any improvement. Right. Wow. During that time, and this is something I address in the book, you have to embrace your recovery community, but not completely depend on them. Mm -hmm. But you got to have someone to fall back on because you're going to get rejected, you know? For and sure. I don't know if, if it's, I think it's true for everyone. It's not, it's not, it doesn't feel good. No. To be <laughs> rejected, put in your place. Yeah. So, yeah, got to have your backup. Um, so, it took, you know, a year, I was a year and a half sober before I could see real progress with the relationship. It took somewhere about four years for my youngest child to warm up to me. Wow. And um and I'm very very grateful for the relationships I have now mm -hmm. and for the experience because I here's the hopeful part. 
I have relationships with my kids. So we're at least six years post the, you know, because I'm over 10 years sober. But I have relationships that uh, far exceed anything I ever hoped for. Wow. Amazing. It It's such a blessing. I'm pro- I definitely am still codependent with my kids. I still, I mean, my favorite things to do are to travel with my kids, go hiking with my kids. Um, but since, you know, there's limited time, I kind of justify that. But that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Too. Anyhow, it's possible. Yeah. It's going to take hard work. It's possible. I think, um, I I think one of the, one of the most important pieces that you have just shared with us is that, you know, there is hope, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to happen overnight. And that's something that, you know, through my own personal experience with my family and my addiction and recovery and working with hundreds of people, it's, it's getting them to realize that that work has to be done. Now the work's going to be different for everybody. I don't know what Mm -hmm. that's going to look like, but we've got to be open to trying it, willing to do it. And it's going to be a process. It's not going to repair everything overnight, right? And I think you just nailed it on the head with any listeners that are listening and looking for that quick fix that there isn't really a quick fix for any of this. It, it takes a, a dedicated amount of work and it's ongoing. It might change as you move forward, but it's it's ongoing work and there is hope. Huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So if I can do it, <clears throat> you can do it. Um. And it's crazy. Like I was at a meeting the other day and um, you still hear it. You hear it almost, often where people go, yeah, I hadn't talked to my family. They cut me off 10 years ago. I'm okay with it. And I'm like, but are you really? Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not trying to take anyone's inventory, but I want to just reach out and go, Hey, if you want to change that, let's talk. Yeah. You know? Um, but I think it's a really common thing for all of us that we've done damages um and okay and this happened to me is that i you know did things in blackouts that i didn't learn about until i was like two years sober Mm. and um that was kind of scary yeah (laughs) absolutely i did what (laughs) yeah yeah Wild. One of the things I want to mention in reference to that, too, is that, okay, so there's not a start and a finish with repairing relationships. There's a start. Sometimes there's three steps back. It gets worse. Then it gets better. Mm-hmm. Then you think everything's great. And um, something raises its ugly head. And you're like, oh, my God. And that's like working the steps 10, 11, 12. Yeah. You pause, you address those issues. I mean, things still come up for me. I had a situation last couple of months when um, one of my adult children at home and it was, and here's what I do. I get tired and cranky at night and drinking. I'm sure I got tired, cranky and abusive, mm-hmm. but I was tired and cranky and like no one was helping me clean up. And I started to bark like, you child do this you do this and um one of my sons said to me you're triggering me and i was like what because this this reminds me of the craziness that you did you know when i was young Mm -hmm. at night all of a sudden you would be like the house is a mess and no one's helping me and i'm so pitiful poor and and i and i did i did that but i had totally won not realize the intensity 
of my child's reaction to that. Mm-hmm. And um, I diminished it and I hadn't recognized it. The fact that it came up was a blessing. Mm-hmm. It was it was a great gift because I'm like, let's heal that wound. And I'm honestly, I'm human. My first reaction was like, oh no, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. But I've learned, and I think this is a key tool for us as family, I mean, as addicts towards our family members, is to learn to pause and think about it. So I was like, what? Okay. I'm like. Matthew, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to say your name. I got to think about this. And I was like, I get it. I get it. And then you come back and you go, I see your point of view. So sometimes the correction's not immediate. Sometimes you have to ask for time. My favorite go to saying to my, um, to almost anyone, to my boss, to any kind of criticism that I get that I don't feel like is constructive, or if I find myself reacting to, to say, you might be right. Oh, that's huge. Let me think about that for a few minutes and I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, it's hard for people to still keep going at you um, on that. Like, I wish every customer service representative mm-hmm. would lead with that. You know, like when you're calling about, my car's not ready yet. And they go like, let's see what we can do to fix that. Yeah. As opposed to explaining, justifying, making justifications. Absolutely. Excuses. Yeah. I had somebody a couple of years ago share that with me. Well, you might be right. And that was mm-hmm. a huge help in my, you know, my life moving forward when I, when I was confronted with any hard conversations or any conflict, right. Instead of arguing the points, it's, well, you might be right. Let me get back to you on that. And it kind of deescalated everything and gave me that pause to walk away and think about it, process it. Yeah. Huge. Okay, which reminds me of one of my key points that Mm -hmm. I preach about. And I learned this from my sponsor, too, who also is an adult child of an alcoholic. Um, Really early on, if your child says, or your spouse, partner says, I felt this emotion when this happened. You have to honor their thoughts and feelings, their experiences. I, um, All of us are going to have different points of view. We see a car accident in the street. We're going to see different things that happened. Mm-hmm. It's really important to honor other people's feelings, their opinions. Don't diminish them. Don't explain or justify, which I think I was terrible about this well of course i drank at night because i was doing the dishes i needed a glass of wine to get me through it to numb myself out explanations excuses do more damage than just saying yeah yeah i I think you hit the nail on the head there wow so you have to um honor their feelings and opinions yeah which also leads me to a key point if I may. Absolutely. Um, here's the one big mistake that I think traditional family therapy changes from how family therapy with addicts, what, what as addicts we need is we need more focus on the present. I mean, therapy in general is about digging up the past. Yeah. 
understanding, learning why you do the things you do. Family therapy with addicts, I think, has to be on the present, not so much on the past. Uh, This is also a reason why it's good to have an addiction specialist, um, someone who understands that with addiction, you're treating the disease first Mm -hmm. as opposed to the addict in the family situation. Right. Um, And that has great implications moving forward. It relieves some of the shame that the addict, it's fine for us to feel guilty about the stupid stuff we did, but shame now because- you know, we have a disease. For sure. It also enables the family to put some of their anger towards the disease as opposed to addict, to be able to separate out. And just that little step, that's that little step helps so much mm-hmm. in learning to accept it all. So, yeah. Sorry. No, nope, I that's, preach on that. <clears throat> I think it's, um, it's very valuable information because I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah. I think that also to the family needs that education about the disease concept. Yeah. And how it affects our oh just things like that in early treatment. Mm-hmm. We tend to be suffering from a little bit of brain fog. <laughs> yeah. Just a and little bit. Can, yeah, and it can be <laughs> as minor as like uh forgetful being distracted mm-hmm. to true like brain damage fog absolutely where it is going to take months to clear up yeah. and um i didn't think i had it yeah neither did i <laughs> yeah until i got far enough away from early sobriety where i look back and my daughter and i i don't know if she laughs about it but i laugh about it we had this huge fight one day over the cat and fleas and I was terrifically wrong. And my thinking was crazy. It was just crazy, but I couldn't see it at the time. Right. I couldn't relate the consequences of the flea problem to the cat and why the cat had to live outside. Right. Yeah. Just crazy stuff like that. And I, I think it's important that we let our family members know that, hey, we're working on this, um, which is another great catchphrase. Like, I hear what you're saying. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to work on this. And then I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, again, this is where our sponsors and our recovery community is so helpful. My therapist or my sponsor, oh my God, one of my best friends. She was my temporary sponsor at first when I went to treatment. Um, and still to this day, when I call her and I need to vent about something, she'll let me vent. It might be five minutes. It might be 10 minutes. And invariably, at the end of it, she goes, Okay. Janice, let me tell you about someone who's really got problems. And it puts it all in perspective. Yeah. Wow. And so that's, we need our recovery community to help us understand. Um, And that's why I like, I reached out to (laughs) 
the children of my peers to say, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. My child said they were embarrassed by all the key tags hanging on my peer, my purse. I'm so proud of them, but they want me to take them off. So then you talk to the child, you talk to another recovering addict, and they go, yeah, that happened to me too. Yeah. And it's a small price to pay. Yeah, You be proud of your key tags, but tuck them inside your purse so when you open it up, you see them. You don't have to display it to everyone. They're not comfortable with your <laughs> the world knowing that you're an alcoholic yet. Yeah, yeah. Get, that goes back to honoring their feelings. Absolutely, it does, yeah. So Very cool. No, and that's that's a new way of living, right? Understanding that, you know, it's not just about us anymore and, and honoring their feelings and their perspectives. And it's, yeah, an entirely new way of living. Yeah. Love it. Um, I feel like I'm rambling on too much. Oh, goodness, no. No, I think, I know for sure, a lot of the stuff that you have said is stuff that I either practice in my own recovery and with my relationships or, you know, I've read it, heard it somewhere. It's all super valuable stuff. And a lot of the listeners don't, I would, you know, venture a guess to say that this might be their first experience hearing this stuff. So I think it's super valuable. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I want to <laughs> hit on a few of my other favorite helpful hints. Please do. Um, Got to be supportive of them working a program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. Some of us in addiction might not want our families to get too healthy because then that takes away our excuse to act out. Yeah. So you got to look at things. I mean, I'm saying on one hand, stay in the present and the problems, but you also have to play the tape forward Mm -hmm. and say, all right, they get involved in Al-Anon. They go to therapy. It's going to help us in the long run. So you got to be supportive of their program too, which yeah. means you might have to babysit the kids some nights, things like that, or juggle your schedule so you can both make your meetings. Yeah, for sure. Also, as a side to that too, I know at the clubhouse that I go to, there are literally at least four meetings a day for AA alone. Yeah. Um, <coughs> oh no, I take it back. There's three meetings a day. But if you add in like the NA meeting here, the CA meeting there, the OA meeting, there are four meetings a day. And there are, I looked at this before coming to this podcast, there are four Al-Anon meetings a week Wow! at our clubhouse. And now our clubhouse is a very well-established house. It's been there forever. They keep expanding. It's very positive but that you've got to think about that too that there's not as many resources for our family members mm-hmm. and oh my god i could ramble on um our family members are not going to get the same support as we do yeah. because they're going to have let's say my spouse my spouse vents to their parents or their brothers or sisters about my crazy behaviors And that spouse has no very, very little understanding of addiction. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be as sympathetic and understanding. They're not going to be like, give it time. They're, They're more likely to make the family member feel bad for hanging in there with you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. hundred percent. Yeah. I've seen it happen numerous times and it, you're right. It comes down to, they're not as educated around the disease of addiction as the people who are right in the middle of it. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. All right. One of my favorite, favorite things to do. This is, um, and some people would say it's a little manipulative, but I know I love it when one of my kids or one of my good friends compliments me in front of other people. So a quick way to build some respect to overcome some wounds is to do that. Or even better, to say to them directly, I appreciate your efforts with this. Amazing. I think that that's one of the warmest things you can hear. Yeah. All right. Um, Okay, real quick thing. We don't have time to talk about it. I urge families to learn how to build connection as opposed to control, understand mm-hmm. the differences, improve their emotional intelligence. And then I have some no-no nevers that yeah. I love. Oh, this is going to be good. So, first one is make promises. You <laughs> yeah, They're not going to believe our promises anyhow. No, for sure not. We've made so many promises and active addiction that it's just, they're not going to believe it. It's just going to be another f- thing for them to judge you about. Yeah, for sure. Don't make comparisons. This is easy to do. Like, oh, Kim's kids, they got over da 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 How come my kids can't do it? Mm-hmm. Can't make comparisons. Everyone's situation is different. Look for the positive similarities. Yeah. Come from that um, strength-based perspective that's huge yeah (laughs) this is this is a pet peeve i have saying i know how you feel or i'm sorry that you feel that way yeah you've got to learn how to make a good apology a good thorough amends is valuable that's a whole nother podcast too Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's a big topic. Um, But we never really know how someone else feels. I may have lost, so I did. I lost my mom when I was two years, uh, two years sober. My experience losing her is going to be vastly different than my neighbor who lost their parent. Mm I do not know how they feel. I can say things like, this is what happened to me. How are you doing? There's all kinds of little cues like that, all kinds of things. Um, I don't know what has been most helpful to you in building back your relationships with your family members. Uh, I think, like we talked about early on, right? Taking that time at the start to recognize that this wasn't going to happen overnight. Like my two older boys, you know, it was crickets for, for a very long time. And I don't blame them at all. Right. They were so disappointed in dad because dad, you know, told them about how bad drugs and and alcoholism is, you know, and in the background, Mm -hmm. this is the lifestyle I was living this double life. And I don't blame them at all for being upset and not wanting to talk to dad, but understanding that it wasn't going to happen overnight and my recovery had to come first. And I, you know, we touched on that earlier on, you mentioned that and a lot of family members, you know, um, 
inactive addiction. It was a disease of isolation and, and selfishness. And when I got into recovery and now I was putting these meetings in this program and all these other things first, it was the backlash I got from some of that nuclear family that, you know, well, you've been selfish mm-hmm. for so long and now you're still selfish in recovery. You're doing everything you want to do. And, uh, really working with my therapist around that piece was, you know, if I don't do this, nothing else is going to matter. Cause I'm going right back down that dark rabbit hole at some point in my life. And, mm-hmm. and it took a couple of years and, and things started to come together and those conversations started to happen with my sons and, uh, recognizing my peace and all that and, and making those solid thorough amends. Like I had those first couple of years to, to recognize the behaviors, the underlying causes, work on those pieces to change all that. And then I started to really make those direct amends with them and show them, you know, it wasn't about making, you know, saying, I'm sorry, this happened and all this stuff. It was about, I recognize I did this and this is the way I behaved. These are the things I've done to change all that. And I'm working on being better. And and I want to have this relationship with you and wait to see how it landed with them. Cause like you said, right. I have no control over other people and how they feel. So I can do what I can control, present it to them, and then just sit back and God has it after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and, beautifully said. Oh my gosh. Well, and it took a long time to to come to that and a lot of ups mm-hmm. and downs and a lot of stumbling and, and a lot of depression and sitting, you know, 300 kilometers away, we're kilometers up here from <laughs> my kids and wondering man, I wonder how they're doing, right? But I'm not going to keep pushing my will on them because I got to do this work and be okay with it and look at it as a long haul. You know, I'm doing this today in order to better my relationship with them in the future. I don't know when that's going to be, but I'm going to be my best version of me when that time comes. Mm-hmm. And uh, a living, yeah. I was going to say, you know, you're uh, doing a living amends. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, that, this obviously could go into a series of podcasts with these topics because mm-hmm. they're they're huge and, and they're all valuable in their own. But I think overall, those are the pieces that, you know, jumped up at me today was based on the experience you're sharing with us is in, in my own journey. That's the pieces that were most beneficial to me in the long run. So fast forward eight, nine years later, if I wouldn't have done that at the start, I can't say where I would be today, but I know it would be in a less beneficial place for all of us involved. If, if I didn't push through that fear of, of doing the selfish work and I use air quotes with that, right. Cause that's what it was called, but I just knew how beneficial it was going to be for myself. Cause the individual I was connected with who had that recovery I wanted had 15 years in a program and was the most serene man I'd ever met in my life. And I'm like, I want that. How did you get that? Mm-hmm. And he was grateful or you know, gracious enough to share how he got that. And then I could pick and choose what I wanted out of his recovery. And man, some of it worked. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it wasn't easy. And when it didn't work, you go back to the drawing board. For sure. You know, and try it something, try something different. You don't give up. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I w- share with people, right? That not everything is going to work, but stay open-minded and willing to try the next thing because there's always something that's coming, you know, you're open-minded to meeting new people and, and recovery networks are growing and somebody's going to share something with you that's new to you. And if you're closed off and not present and you're going to miss those opportunities to load up your tool belt with something that might work for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally agree. Amazing. Totally. And then you leave a lasting impression. I mean, this is what 
my sponsor reminds me when I feel like I have failed or I feel like I feel regret over the period in my life that I was a train wreck. Mm-hmm. She, she reminds me that I'm living the example that you can get through it. Yeah. I mean, bad stuff happens, but you can get through it. You can work through it. For sure. Sitting here today, we're both batting a thousand at getting through <laughs> hard things. Right. And in the moment when I was going through some of that hard stuff and it was the hardest things I've ever encountered in my life, I thought it was the end. I didn't think I was going to ever see the other side of this. This is going to be the death of me. And suddenly Mm -hmm. you're through it and on to the next challenge. Yeah. Right. And it's all celebrating those successes and not just, you know, sloughing them off as, oh yeah, coincidence or whatever it is. No, it was, you know, a lot of it was hard work and it was hard and it was painful. And, but we learned a lot of lessons going through it and, uh, fortunate enough for me, I had enough blessings mixed in there that, uh, it came out on the on the positive side of most mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I think if you keep working towards it, it doesn't, you know, hard work pays off. Mm-hmm. And I, I was sharing this with that same individual yesterday that, you know, in year one, and you might be able to resonate with this. I'm fairly sure you will, that the resources and the, and the support I had in year one are drastically different now than they were then because I dealt with a lot of those existential crises and those external stressors and, and my behavior and own my stuff, right? Work through a lot of that stuff. It's in the past. It's cleaned up now, but I didn't just eliminate those supports and not fill it with something new. It's always mm-hmm. about finding more supports, building this network. And the work that I do today is drastically different than I did in those first 12, 24 months, but it's still work. It's just a different yeah. direction. And yeah, it's always building when you, when you think you got it figured out, you're going backwards usually. Yeah. And okay. So, and here's a key point that I failed to mention. It's finding that balance. Mm-hmm. So that early in your recovery, your balance is way lopsided in that you're putting your energy and efforts into recovery Yeah, and your family's got a smaller, you know, piece of the pie. It helps to reassure them because like 10 years sober, I still make meetings. I still love meetings. I still do my meditation. But the time it takes away from my family is very small mm-hmm. now. Whereas early on, I mean, I went to a halfway house. My <clears throat> time away from my family was 100%. Yeah. I wish I, at that early stage I would have said, this is not going to be forever. You know? Yeah. It's going to get better. As opposed to doing what I did was sticking my head in the sand. So, wow. I think that's, that's some solid advice that it's, Mm -hmm. it's not going to take forever. But I know when I was early on, I couldn't see any other way. Like that obsession and compulsion to, to use and and drink was still there at the start. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, this is going to be forever because it was such a powerful grasp on me. And through the, you know, the, the rewiring of my brain and over time and tools and support and all these things, like you said, fast forward eight, nine years later. I, it isn't that much time that it's taken away from my other everyday life, but it's still just as valuable, even though it's a smaller amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huge. I love it. Well, it's been fun talking about this oh, with you. Oh my gosh, for sure. And, and yeah, I say this listeners who listen to our podcast regularly will hear this. Oh, good. We're going to get to hear Janice again because 
you know, there's such a vast amount of experience you bring to this from different perspectives, your professional life, your, your mm-hmm. lived experience, the parenting and recovery piece, you know, you can't t- dig into it all in, in one hour. So we'd love to have you back on for another episode in the future here. And, and we'll find some of the other stuff that we talked about today that huge, very valuable topic. Dive into uh, ab- yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to have you back on. And I'm sure any listeners that uh, hear this podcast would love to hear you again because yeah, you bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to this that I think somebody out there, well, I know for a fact, somebody out there will be struggling with something that we touched on today that we didn't have time to do, to dive into. And they're mm-hmm. sitting there thinking, damn, well, yeah, we're going to have yeah. you back on to, to dig into some of those topics. Cause they're, everybody out there is going through something and we don't know what it is, but the more we touch on and the more we shine light on, hopefully that's uh, somebody's, you know, key to unlocking their, their door that is keeping them stuck. Yeah, absolutely. One last tip or trick, one last word of advice or, or wisdom that you could share with the listeners that, you know, whether it's from your professional career or from your, you're just navigating life in recovery or something that, you know, somebody might take something away at the end of this episode that they can work well, on. I have, <clears throat> I have nothing profound, but I think the word is hope. Yeah. You know, I um, hope I think is the most powerful tool we have. Mm-hmm. You've got to have hope and yeah. keep working and the desire to keep learning. So mm. learning, research, trying new things, never giving up, yeah. but believing that it's possible. Absolutely. Right. And, and building that resilience along the way by learning these new skills and abilities is, oh my gosh, it's been life-changing for me, this recovery journey. And mm-hmm. I, I said it the other day um, and it was an individual who shared it with me, right? Early on in his recovery, uh, the obsession and the compulsion was so strong. And that's how was my experience as well. That when I got into recovery, when he got into recovery, all we wanted was that to be removed. And if that's all we would have got, man, we would have sold ourselves so short because the journey has been so amazing, <laughs> but it I didn't really know is. any, I didn't know any different at the start. I just wanted to have a choice in life. And up until that point, drugs and the addiction had control over all my choice at the end. Right. Yeah, it's been a fascinating journey and it's crossed paths with, you know, enabled me to cross paths with so many people that are doing so many amazing things around this, this dirt ball. <laughs> and <laughs> and you're one of them, right? Like, it's just amazing that nobody is alone in this, right? We just got to break through right. that little bit of stigma and that fear, push through it, pause and breathe, push through it. And the people are out there. The hope is out there. Mm-hmm. Amazing, Janice. Thank you so much for spending the last portion of your uh, morning with us. I know if I were you and living where you live, I might have been recording this outside. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, I I can't express our gratitude enough for you taking time to share with our listeners. And we will definitely have you back on here in the future on season four at some point. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And hopefully next time I'm on, I'll be able to say, the book has a publication date. So why maybe so. Absolutely. And why don't you take these last few, I'll put it in the footnotes as well, but uh, where okay. people can find you on Instagram and your website and let's, let's throw that out there. All right. So my website is oh. www.janisjohnsondowd. That's D as in dog. 
parentingunderscore.com. And then Instagram is parenting underscore the word I N N underscore recovery. Awesome. So, yeah. Awesome. And I will, like I said, I will have the correct spelling and I'll have those links in the footnotes for this episode. And uh, please check out Janice's stuff and we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye out for your book release. Okay. Wonderful. Fingers crossed. All right. <laughs> Thank you very <laughs> Thank much. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It was my pleasure and our listeners will uh, be better off, I believe, for hearing Great. this episode with you on it and uh, continue doing what you're doing down there because you're making a difference. I know that for sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. Wonderful. A great deal. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, that concludes another episode of From Darkness to Life. Make sure to check us out on Instagram at our new page at FDTL podcast. Check out our websites, ourcollectivejourney.ca. And uh, don't be afraid to reach out to us at any time if you're struggling or you're a listener and you just need some guidance or support, or you've heard a, a guest that you really resonate with and you want to maybe get in touch with them, send us an email and we'll put you in touch with their contact information or their website or something. So with that, we're going to close out this week and I uh, look forward to seeing everybody next week. So thanks for tuning in. The end. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the real stories of people who've triumphed over the many challenges of life's journey. If you or a loved one needs support, please reach out to ourcollectivejourney.ca. Our commitment is to empower you to build resilience as you journey towards recovery. Consider showing your support by donating online at ourcollectivejourney.ca. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pate. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Crookshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive.